Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast. Located in Norfolk, Virginia, the MacArthur Memorial is a museum and research center dedicated to the life and legacy of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur. The memorial is also dedicated to preserving and presenting the story of the millions of men and women who served with General MacArthur. Each month, the staff of the memorial will use this podcast to explore topics relating to General MacArthur and his times. In April 2014, as part of the MacArthur Memorial's 50th anniversary commemoration, the memorial hosted a special speaker series. One of the speakers, Mitchell Yackelson, author of the book MacArthur, America's General, gave a brief overview of some of General MacArthur's World War II service. MacArthur, America's General was published by Thomas Nelson as part of the General series. Publisher in, in Nashville, Tennessee, Thomas Nelson wanted to do a series of books on generals. And MacArthur was at the top of their list. They were looking for somebody to write on him. And I jumped at the chance. But as, as Jim pointed out, he's been covered significantly. Uh, great detail. D. Clayton James has done a trilogy on him. Of course, uh, William Manchester's American Caesar, a great book. Uh, Jeffrey Perrot so forth and so on. The challenge also from the publisher was to write a book about 150 pages or so, normally about half the size of a book. How do you commence the story of Douglas MacArthur, a guy that served 52 years in the United States military, led troops in combat in three wars, superintendent of West Point, most decorated soldier in World War I, received the Medal of Honor in the Second World War. So it was a challenge. With Jim's help and everybody else, I think I was able to narrow down his life. But one of the, the real challenges, though, was trying to figure out Douglas MacArthur. And what I learned during the course of the writing of him, and my own interest is, you either loved Douglas MacArthur or you hated him. Most people, when you ask them about MacArthur, nobody is in the middle. They either loved him or they hated him. And I can tell you, by the time I finished the book, I really admired him, and if I had the opportunity to go back in time, he certainly would be among some of the top people that I would have liked to have, have met. As the book was getting ready to go to publication, the editor asked me, what do you want to subtitle it? And after going through the book, and this is what I'll talk about uh, briefly today, I recognized that for the period, especially World War II, he was America's general. Everybody in the United States who could read or watch newsreels at the movie theaters, knew who Douglas MacArthur was, and they admired him. Not so much maybe on Capitol Hill, the White House, and maybe in other ranks in the Army, but the American people loved him. So I said to the editor, let's call him America's General. And he said, yeah, great title. So they put that down, and then he wrote me, and he said, well, we got a problem, because the whole series of books is on American generals. So we can't have Douglas MacArthur, American General, and then under the American General series. So I had to scramble, and I thought, well, what else is there about MacArthur that people know about? And that is absolutely correct. He was very defiant. Other people would call him obstinate. So then I came up with the other title, um, The Defiant Soldier. What happens? They publish the book, use the original title on the cover, but if you open up the book, it's called Douglas, it's called MacArthur, Defiant Soldier. So he got two subtitles, and I think he's worthy of both. Let's jump ahead to World War II. We've already heard today about him um, at, at West Point. 
Uh, we had a great presentation on the Rainbow Division and the Alabamans, and I agree 100% with Rod. His defining moment in the military was the Cote de Chatillon in October of 1918. But jumping ahead to World War II, we all know how we got to the Southwest Pacific area in Australia, so I won't cover that. The Americans were not doing well in the Pacific, and much to uh, MacArthur's chagrin, the Pacific theater played second fiddle to the European theater. As soon as war was declared, Winston Churchill and Stalin had met with FDR and said to him, look, we really need to concentrate on Europe. We need to take out Hitler. I know the Pacific theater is important to the United States. You need to um, take care of the Japanese as well, but we need your resources in Europe. So MacArthur was left with less troops, although he did have use of the United States Marine Corps, which by that time probably had more experience than any other military unit in the United States and had a great navy to boot. So MacArthur gets down there. The initial battles are not going well. The Japanese are holding their own. They've got all the islands leading up through the southwest Pacific. He comes up with, I would argue, um, the second most brilliant plan of his career. The third one would be, of course, Inchon. And he comes up with the idea of the island hopping, the idea to take the islands from the Japanese forward movement and create airfields there. This um, operation, of course, is known as Operation Cartwheel. And first he had um, attacked the area of Rabul, which was a very strong point for the Japanese, a difficult operation. But MacArthur conceived this idea of the island hopping through cartwheel, which took place from June uh, through, started in June 1943 and went out about a year. And he wrote that my strategic conception for the Pacific Theater, which I outlined after the Popian uh, campaign, and have since consistently advocated contemplating massive strokes, only main strategic objectives, utilizing surprise and air ground striking power, supported and insisted by the fleet. So he was working in concert with the Navy at this time. This is the very opposite of what is termed island hopping. So he didn't want to recognize this, which is the gradual pushing back of the enemy by direct frontal pressure with the consequent Heavy casualties will certainly be involved. Key points must, of course, be taken, but a wise choice of such will obviate the need for storming the mass of island now in enemy possession. In quotes, island hopping with extravagant losses and slow progress is not my idea of how to end the war as soon as cheaply possible. New conditions require for solution and new weapons require for maximum application new and imaginative methods. Wars are never won in the past. But what he ends up doing is kind of um, countering what he says, and indeed we do have the island hopping. But the one point I want to bring out is that MacArthur was a brilliant writer as well. He reminds me a lot of Ulysses Grant. When you read, whether it was a speech, when you read a report written by MacArthur, you rarely have to read it twice because the intent is there. Here he is with, excuse me, Chester Nimitz going through one of the Navy plans for what's going to be progressed through the Pacific. Jumping ahead, probably the most important meeting of the Second World War for MacArthur is um, with um, FDR and um, along with um, Nimitz. This took place in 1944 in um, June, I'm sorry, in July of uh, 1944. This is the first time that MacArthur had seen FDR since 1937. 
And we all know the story of uh, MacArthur's chief of staff. FDR would call him the most dangerous man in America. There's a new book by a historian by the name of Mark Perry, who's written kind of a dual biography of FDR and MacArthur covering this town. And what Perry argues, and I somewhat agree with him, is that FDR really tried to control MacArthur. And for the most part, he did an, an admirable job. But here we are in July of 1944. The war in the Pacific is moving along, but relatively at a snail's pace. Cartwheel did pretty well. We're driving the Japanese. But now the decision is, we're th over three years into the war, what do we do next? Still with the Pacific theater playing um, a second part to the European theater. MacArthur, having left the Philippines and made the promise that he shall return, gives his spiel to um, FDR, whereas um, Nimitz wants to bypass the Philippines and says, you know, we need to go straight towards Formosa. So they are, for three days, they're in Pearl Harbor. They're discussing this. They go over the plans in front of FDR, and FDR plays it very cool as a politician. He leaves the conference, and he doesn't tell either Nimitz or MacArthur what his decision is. But MacArthur, being the cocky guy that he is, feels pretty strong that he's going to get his way. And sure enough, in September of 44, MacArthur is told, we will go towards the Philippines. And this, of course, brings on the famous um, Leyte uh, landing. In October of 44, MacArthur lands in Leyte in this famous photograph, which has a fair amount of uh, controversy around it, whether or not it was staged. And, but it's, it's one of the most iconic photographs. And I will argue at this point, Douglas MacArthur is the most famous military figure, perhaps the most famous American at this time. Uh, even more than FDR, he gets so much press coverage. He's on the cover of magazines such as Time magazine. We saw Douglas MacArthur II. I believe uh, MacArthur was on the cover of Time magazine at least four times during the war, and I don't know uh, post-war how many times. Children were named Douglas. Families were writing letters to him all around the world. In Australia, he was lauded as a hero. And MacArthur, this is where he comes in as the defiant soldier. He sold the idea to FDR, we need to come back to the Philippines. This is important for me. This is a moral issue. We let the Filipino people down. We didn't build up their resources. We left them open to attack by the Japanese. We vacated the island. We left it under General Wainwright, who was forced to retire. The largest surrender of an American army since uh, the American Civil War. And MacArthur won that idea over. It put him in a new light to FDR and the members of the Joint Chiefs. And you can see this in the wonderful exhibit in the uh, museum here, but just the landing of the troops, the thousands of American troops, it was muddy, it was difficult. It was very much similar to what was going on in the European theater with the landings at Normandy. Towards the end of the war, we know what happened. The Philippines was a long, bloody struggle. The Japanese use all their resources. They start the use of kamikaze planes. They're attacking American ships. And without the atomic bomb dropping of the two of them in August of 1945, there's no doubt that Operation Coronet and some of the other landings would have taken place. The War Department figured there were tens and tens of thousands of American casualties had we had to invade Japan. 
Luckily, because of the atomic bombs, a decision, I believe, correctly made by uh, President Truman, Japan surrenders. Here you have this wonderful, warm um, embrace between Douglas MacArthur and uh, General Wainwright. This leads to the surrender of the Japanese aboard the Missouri. The ship uh, was selected by President Truman for obvious reasons, the fact that it was a ship named for um, his home state. And then in summing it up, MacArthur becomes the true hero of the war. And also, I would think, on equal footing of Dwight D. Eisenhower. Eisenhower, as you may know, was MacArthur's aide um, in the Philippines back in um, the 30s. He was with MacArthur in Washington in 1932 during the ill-fated bonus march episode. And there was some jealousy there between MacArthur and um, Eisenhower. More on MacArthur's part. And later on, that jealousy would, would increase when um, uh, Eisenhower is being touted as a Republican candidate for the president, something that MacArthur felt was owed to him. But circling back and looking at this great photograph of the man that we're honoring today, I would say it was his defiance that brought the Pacific War clearly to an end. He was the true leader. He was the person that the Americans needed. And had he not been in charge, the war may have gone on perhaps for a year longer, maybe even longer than that. And for that reason, I will call him America's general. Thank you. Uh, any questions? I had one question. Sure. Um, did you start writing the book with any preconceptions about Douglas MacArthur that changed during your research? Well, as you know, Jim, as trained historians, we're supposed to look at our history, our writing, in a very neutral, neutral, as Fox News would say, fair and balanced. But, yeah, I did have some preconceived notions about him. Most of the stuff that I had read uh, was relatively negative about him. Again, the obstinacy, the fact that he didn't get along very well with politicians. Uh, as a World War I historian, the bonus march had always bothered me. The fact that he sent out the regular troops against the, um, the veterans, the bonus veterans. But as I started to read more about him and read a variety of books that went from the gamut of, again, loving him or hating him, I never found anything that was kind of middle of the road. I said... You really need to get a better sense. And by the time, again, I read this book, or I'm sorry, I finished writing the book, I thought this, this guy is certainly deserves the accolades. He deserves to have the memorial here and, and an archives dedicated to him. Thank you very much for this very informative lecture. You're welcome. Um, I really have just a comment. I had the opportunity to meet the senior economic advisor to the United Nations Secretary General, our President Koyar, and the economic advisor was from Japan. And so we asked him at one of our meetings what he thought about General MacArthur's uh, time as administrator in Japan. And he was full of the greatest prey. And his only complaint was that he had not gone far enough in his reforms. But um, he gave great tribute to General MacArthur. And as a lawyer, I also um, studied just very cursorily Japanese law. And I came away with an admiration for General MacArthur's time in Japan. And I might add that under the Japanese Constitution as drafted uh, through General MacArthur, men and women are equal, something that we're not even, we have not even attained in our country. But um, it, what, what he and his staff did uh, in Japan 
during that administrative time was simply phenomenal. And I would really encourage everyone to uh, look at that particular period. You're absolutely right. Our keynote speaker this morning mentioned the fact that of MacArthur's reforms in Japan during the occupation and, and pointed out the fact that he insisted upon women getting the right to vote. It's interesting you, you bring up, when, I was, when I've done other book talks on the MacArthur, there's always somebody in the audience who knew of him or knew somebody that knew him. And almost always they'll say, when he walked into a room, you knew MacArthur was there. He lit up the room. He would come up to you and do sort of a cursory, hi, how are you, and introduce himself. But after that, it was all Douglas MacArthur. And one of the sources that I use here at the archives, a wonderful collection that Jim turned me on to, were the um, interviews done by historian D. Clayton James, the one that did the three-volume biography. And he, I guess, turned over all his notes here. And he would bring that point out that when MacArthur was in that room with you, all eyes were on the general, and he, made you, he let you know that. Well, th this is more of a comment than a question. Um, given all the books written about MacArthur and, and all the research and so forth, I, I see your work particularly useful. Um, and that's not meant as a negative against anybody else's uh, work. But uh, this, to me, would be an excellent piece to get, give to someone that doesn't have the time or is just getting to know MacArthur that wants to get an overall view without going into a lot of heavy reading and research. So, um, you know, I'm going to buy your book and probably a couple extra ones to give out to people as gifts. So thank you. Well, I appreciate you saying that. And to kudos to the publisher, who's unfortunately no longer publishing this book or the entire series, but that was their goal, is to put together these small collections of books. They did others on Pershing, on Washington, on Patton, and other people. But exactly what you just said, to, to kind of... Um, tease people, to wet your whistle. And, and if you are interested in MacArthur, certainly, and I think Jim could weigh in, I mean, American Caesar is a great book. It's got a lot of superlatives. If you really want the detailed analysis of uh, MacArthur literally day by day, then D. Clayton James' trilogy is impeccably researched, and I relied on that a great deal. You mentioned uh, in a couple of places MacArthur dealing with naval commanders during the Pacific War, and I was just wondering if so this being a Navy town, I know there's a lot of misconceptions about how MacArthur got along with the Navy. And I was wondering if you could talk about his relationships with Bull Halsey and with uh, Chester Nimitz. Well, just the, the, the sheer name of Bull kind of tells you right there. Um, they were in competition. I mean, they had their own ideas. They were all strong individuals. If you go to Annapolis, where I live, I mean, they, they roll. I teach, again, part-time at the Naval Academy. There's the Naval Academy Library is named for for Nimitz. Um, during the war, there was definitely some um, contentious um, feelings towards one another. And, and I think it, it, even the same thing, you know, during all the other wars, when you look at what happened with General Pershing and, and uh, Marshal Foch, um, afterwards they were great friends. And I think the same thing could be said about MacArthur. There was, it wasn't that he felt anything negative towards the Navy, but with his mind, and I think he was correct, the Navy was not going to win the Pacific Theater in World War II. It was going to have to be on the land battles. It was going to have to be his forces, whether it was the Army troops under his command or the Marine troops under his command, moving from island to island, 
eventually landing in Leyte. And if you ever see the Pacific, the, uh, the series on HBO on the Pacific, I think it does a wonderful job of conveying how difficult that was. And this is nothing against the Navy. They played a significant role in keeping the Japanese Navy at bay, no pun intended. But really, as we learn from the war, it was definitely a ground war, and the Japanese were not willing to give up. Ground war in Asia? What about the atomic weapons? That ended the war. MacArthur didn't know anything about the atomic weapons. He was at a, a level where that wasn't discussed with him. Um, he was assuming that the war was going to continue into 1946, and there would have to be a deadly ground attack against Japan. I think in some ways, although he was glad the war was over, in some ways I think he was disappointed that there wasn't this invasion of Japan. And thank God there wasn't, because if you think about the loss of lives, I've seen reports written by the Surgeon General of the Army where they were charged with trying to figure out how many casualties there would be. It was just absolutely astronomical. Thank you for listening. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please feel free to contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.